This is Deep Cut. Listening to our episode on Agnes Varda. She would approve. Uh, she would approve. <laughs> yes. Okay. Keep keep the song in. Okay. Hi. You're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. And I'm Eli Sands. Each episode, we focus on a director by discussing their most popular film alongside a personal favorite from elsewhere in their oeuvre. That joke will make sense in a second. (laughs) We'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context that may help us view the movies as they wanted us to. This week... Oh, it's me! I chose Agnes Varda, the one and only, my one true love. What a wonderful choice. What movies are we going to talk about today? Well... As the most popular or best-known movie, um, we are going to be talking about her 1961 movie, Cleo from 5 to 7. And as a deep cut, I chose 1977's One Sings, The Other Doesn't. This was such a delightful pairing, and I'm so happy that you chose Varda. She's just such a delightful, delightful person with such a huge heart. Yes, yes. I feel like there are so many different reasons why I chose Varda, but I think what makes her stick out to me personally as a director is not only like my admiration for her work, but um, my admiration for the person behind the camera. As a person, if you like see her interviews, if you see her documentaries where she appears in a lot of them, and even like through the movies that she chooses to make and how she makes them, you really get a sense of a person that really cares about the world and really cares about the people around her and wants to do work either documenting or um, as an activist or like in so many different levels, she really inspires me and the sort of art that I want to create in my own life. But yeah, let's let's get into some a brief overview of her life and her career. Um, I feel like a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast know of Varda and know that she is one of the pioneers of the French New Wave, which was a film movement um, started in the 60s um, with Varda, Jacques Demy, Jean-Luc Godard, Alain Reznais. I butch butchered Renee. that name. Renee? Elaine <laughs> Renee, I think. Renee? I don't pretend yeah. to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good guess. Yes, but she was one of the few directors that pioneered this movement. But first, I'm, I'm going to get into like a brief overview of her early life and her career before her she started making films. Um, so Agnes Varda was born in May 1928 in Belgium. Her mother was from France and her father was a member of a family of Greek refugees. She had four other siblings and started studying literature and psychology and like got her first degree um, in the University of Paris and that. She later talks about this time in her life uh, as like, a time in her life where she really didn't enjoy studying or like the field of literature and psychology. So she sort of like pivoted away and wanted to get into the arts and started doing a lot of photography. She talks about her photography work a lot uh, in her film 
The Beaches of Agnes, which is one of the few documentaries that she made about her own career. And I would say, like, arguably, this is, like, one of the best ways to enter into her filmography is watching one of these documentaries. Totally. Because if you, like, see her career through her own eyes, it really makes you appreciate her work more. But yeah, with her photography work, she became good friends with Jean Villar, who was the person responsible for reopening the People's National Theater in France. And he sort of like hired her as their official photographer. Working as a photographer um, for the People's National Theater, she really grew her own reputation as an artist and also like started building her network with other actors and artists and filmmakers. So... Uh, like she, she like developed a interest in filmmaking and in 1954 made her feature film debut which was called La Pointe Court. Have any of you guys seen it? I have not seen this movie. I've not seen it. But I'm excited to watch it. It was also edited by fellow director uh, Alain Reznais. I This is the second time I butchered your name. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> But throughout her career, uh, she made nearly 60 films. That includes shorts and features. And she Narrative was married... and documentary. Yes, narrative and documentary. Uh, and she married fellow French director and fellow icon Jacques Demy, uh, most well-known for his films, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort. They got married in 1962. They had two kids together. They worked together for many years until his death in 1990s. Varda also spent a lot of her career in France, but also spent some years in the West Coast of the U.S. and made a few films there. Some notable documentaries include Muir Muirs, which I recently watched um, about mural paintings in Los Angeles. It is incredibly fascinating and really like one of the best shot documentaries I've like ever seen. Uh, We were talking about this episode, like when we were choosing directors for this episode, and I brought up Oh, the, the fact that she makes both nar- like a lot of narrative films, but also a lot of documentaries. Um, and we sort of like decided to keep this on the narrative side of things so we can maybe focus on her documentary work in a future episode, which I think is a great idea that we Agreed. should follow mm-hmm. through on. Yes, we definitely should. <laughs> maybe someday um, in the future when we have guests, we can get someone who has, you know, some specific expertise in documentary or... Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. Speaks French and knows how to pronounce <laughs> Alain René. <laughs> Alain René. I'm just going to butcher all the names. It's fine. They also, like... while we're on pronunciation, is it Agnes Varda? <laughs> oh, man. Oy. That's a big question. That's just that right now. I think Moving it's right Agnes. Along. <laughs> I think it's Agnes. But yeah, that that is a brief overview of Varda's career and her mostly her life before her career started. But yeah, I'm so excited to talk about these two films and Agnes Varda. Um, But I first want to ask you guys, what other Varda films have you seen in her filmography? Like how many movies have you seen from her? What are your own personal favorites? Yeah, talk to me, friends. (laughs) Okay, before I talk about like the filmography I've seen, like I I was reading about La Pointe Court and like how that was actually before a lot of the other ones, like other kind of seminal 
French New Wave's films were made. Like, she was actually chronologically one of the first, probably the first French New Wave director. And it's pretty much always overlooked. Because I feel like when I first learned about French New Wave, it was Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and, like, someone someone else. I forgot who. Yeah. <laughs> There's always, always these the three dudes. names. Three dudes. But then, apparently, she she got there first. Like, she was the one who kind of set, set the spot for them. Apparently, the way, the, the way film historians kind of break down history. But, I mean... It's all kind of the same thing. It's all just continuous anyway. But I and, found it kind of interesting. Yeah. And also of the of the French New Wave directors, I, I haven't I haven't seen, you know, a ton by all of them, but but Vardis certainly is my favorite that I've seen. And I think it's mm-hmm. because of what you mentioned, Wilson, about just the heart that she brings to all her projects mm-hmm. and the the type of care that she brings to all her characters. I think that with Godard in particular, there can be a lot of kind of um it can be a little cold or like kind of more yeah. about the style of it and the and the kind of image or iconography of it. And Varda really cares about her characters. Just I think with Varda, I think like the other French New Wave directors, like the way that she's doing style, like she's doing a lot of specific things. Like when I was watching a bunch of um, like Varda speeches, like from late in her life, like she remembers these films that she has made as experiments, you know, like mm-hmm. Vagabond with all the tracking shots. Um, apparently, La Point Court is about something she calls double narration, which I don't know what that means. And with um, Cleo, uh, Cleo from Fat to Seven is about real time. And like, so she had this very specific idea that these are experiments in form. So that's very like, you know, how the French New Wave guys. Like, yeah, she approached, guys, French New Wave she filmmakers. approached the, the yeah. filmmaking medium as like an art yeah. form, as an artist. But yeah. her, her kind of closeness to the subject is much more different. Like she's she's much more... She's less alienating in terms of how she approaches the subjects, I think, mm-hmm. compared to the men um, that we know. And the outcome of this sort of care for the subject and also blending in her stylistic, interesting stylistic tendencies leads to a lot of like interesting stylistic choices, which like are so deeply connected to character. I feel like we can get into this more when we were talking about both of these films. Yeah. I think weirdly a good way to describe the effect of Varda is Ben for you to tell your story about seeing faces places. Oh. oh. I don't know how to tell the story in an interesting way because I feel like it's this thing that was in my mind, right? Cuz I saw Faces Places which is I think a 2017 documentary by Varda with JR who is a French photographer who's really cool. JR what he does is he goes around in his magic van and this is a thing that he does which is like he goes around takes photos of people and then prints them really large and then pastes them onto structures that's his thing like he that's all he does yeah like the photos are like the size of a giant wall they're humongous like they so he's I'm not sure how but like he makes friends with Agnes Warder and then they go on this road trip and then they do this across I don't know I think different villages in France that's that's kind of it. That's that's the whole idea. Like they just meet people, take pictures of them, put them on walls. It sounds like the most ridiculous document. Like it just sounds like a weird <laughs> random, weird yeah. road movie, you know? <laughs> but it's so cool because it's about, you know, how they kind of get connected with different people. And I think so the kind of story about it is that like I was in New York City, uh, feeling really off. Like just completely like not 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 depressed, but like just having kind of a melancholy day. And then I was sitting down outside the Lincoln Film Center where I was going to watch Face Places. And then I sat there not really knowing what to do with myself while waiting for the, for the movie. It was like these weird steps. And some random guy 
and I think his name was Eugenio, comes up to me and asks, do I have a pen? And I was like, yeah, sure, here's my pen. And I don't know how it got there, but like somehow we figured it out that we were both film students in different places. Yeah. And that was such a weird moment for me because I was like, whoa, like... Then we started talking about filmmaking, you know, as, you know, young people, bright-eyed and optimistic. Um, (laughs) And I don't know, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a friendship, but it was just like a nice um, happenstance, a chance meeting, which is really what the movie is about, that I watched right after was about. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, she can form such deep connections with people that are fleeting occurrences in her life. And I think that's why it feels like Varda has touched so many people in her career because she has worked such a long time. And even when you are not the person she's talking to, it feels like you are the person she's talking to. Yes. Yeah. And I think her later documentaries are definitely like that. Like, they really feel like she's talking to you. And even if the connections that she makes are spontaneous and fleeting, it's still so clear that they have, they have a permanence and a significance to her in her life. And she, uh, you just get the sense that she has space in her heart for all these connections that she's made over the course of her life. And totally, Ben, it feels like as a viewer, you are part of that. She's one of the directors who has the most clear and personal relationship to the idea of her audience that mm-hmm. I can think of. Yeah. So kind of to talk about like the films I've seen. So I've seen Cleo, I've seen One Sings, and uh, I've seen La Bonne which is happiness in English. It's, it's the name of the movie, which is also really interesting um, with a very kind of ironic style which is very rare i think almost like a i want to say satirical but like almost there yeah and i've what do you mean about ironic style it's people have described labonha as a horror movie that's really Mm. colorful like a like a domestic horror movie if i showed you clips of labonha and i took out the sound took out the subtitles you would think, oh, this is a weird, cheerful movie. It's not. It's a terrifying movie. It's oh. horrific. Oh my god. Yeah. It's and even even with the sound, sometimes you're just like something's so off about it. And there's no like it's not about ghosts or whatever. It's really a very domestic story. But it's really about kind of, I mean, it, it is a feminist movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't want to say too much because you haven't seen it. I feel like you should watch it because it's it's a really strange movie that's so surprising yeah that's sort of um, just like made it shoot to the top of my watch list the way yeah. that you describe <laughs> that movie yeah so i mean for me i've so i've seen those i've seen documentaries beaches Wagner's, faces places i've seen her final documentary varda by agnes which is about herself uh i mean they're all about herself she basically vlogged before it was cool <laughs> like vlogged before it was cool. And she still does it better than like literally everyone else who vlogs today. Varda logs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think for me, like I think the weird thing, like just going to come around and say that I really prefer her documentary to her narrative films, mainly because I like it when she's talking directly to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her narrative work requires me to do more work to understand her perspective. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. just tell me what you feel. <laughs> just tell me. But don't you think the documentaries that she makes about her work, like revisiting these films after like you've heard her talk about these films, like make it so much richer for you? I think that's what it did for Cleo yeah. for me and also One Sings. I think trying to understand what she was trying to do really like cleared so many things in my mind and um yeah made it like a very effective watch um for both movies this time around i agree with that 
I have watched a similar amount of narrative and documentary Varda films. Um, I've seen Cleo, One Sings. I've seen her documentaries, Faces, Places, Black Panthers. I've also seen Varda by Agnes, The Beaches of Agnes, Moor Moors, and a couple documentaries about her, like a few specific films. She made a documentary about uh, Jacques Demy's The Young Girls of Rochefort, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I just really wanted to check that out. And it's a really, really loving doc about his legacy and the film's legacy in the town that it was shot. Um, And I also, in preparation for this episode, I watched a documentary that she made on Cleo from 5 to 7, where she interviewed the actress playing Cleo and the actor playing Antoine and other people that worked on the movie. And it was very eye-opening. But yeah, Eli, which Varda films have you seen? I've seen the two we're discussing today. I've seen Vagabond. I've seen Beaches of Agnes. Agnes. Uh, I've seen <laughs> Faces Places. So I've seen the fewest out of the three of us. But I really do agree with what you said a little bit ago, Wilson, about all of her movies kind of speak to each other and illuminate each other in interesting ways. Really, you could choose any pairing of movies to discuss and you'd get fruitful connections. These two movies are an excellent pairing and they have many themes in common that I want to really dig into. So maybe let's start with a little plot summary of Cleo. Yeah. And then we can start talking about that. Yes. Cleo from five to seven, which is a movie that Varda made in 1961, um, follows a singer named Cleo Victoria for two hours. It, it It basically goes in real time as we see her awaiting the tests from a biopsy. So the film begins in color and we see Cleo getting a pretty ominous tarot card reading from this woman. And the tarot card reading sort of like lays out what's going to happen in the rest of the film for her. The tarot reader talks about a widow that is devoted to her, um, but is also like a terrible influence on her. She's talking about her maid, Anjali, who follows Cleo for the first part of the film where she rides a taxi to her house and meets with her her lover, who the tarot reader sort of describes as a, a generous young man. And we see her going through um, these different scenes in her life, like meeting with different people. And she is always being plagued by this test result. And I wouldn't say that this is like a very conventional plot structure because Varda is playing with the idea of real time. But we sort of see like a structure coming in place where how she divides the film out into different chapters and sort of like the time that she spends with different people in her life during this two hour time period. And what I think is really incredible is how through each of these like mini scenes, um, we sort of get a stronger sense of who Cleo is and then seeing her transform through these really important two hours in her life, her views on life, on beauty, on being a woman, And I think at the end of the film, when she has gotten her test results, I feel like there's a sense of like 
catharsis at the end for both her and for the audience. I really do think that this film like really takes you through a journey and, and the real time really helps you keep engaged with her. I, I was always just like so interested to see like, oh, where she's going to next. Like I always loved when they were shooting in the streets because you can tell that they were, they did not lock down a street. They actually yes. shot <laughs> on these roads. And I really love how Varda plays with time in this movie whether it's like using jump cut techniques, which would be like so counterintuitive to like making like a real time movie, but it works so well in sort of portraying Cleo's frame of mind at the moment. I think this is like one of the ways that Varda uses French New Wave techniques to portray like a character's emotional state, which I think a lot of other French New Wave directors don't really do <laughs> <laughs> no no offense but I, I also think that the different chapters also lets her like play with a lot of different techniques because you like the the amount of like filmmaking that she does in the movie is so vast there are so many different camera techniques editing techniques that she utilizes in these two hours that I, I can't wait to like dive into like my favorite sections but what what do you guys think about this movie? Uh, to, to respond to a couple things in there, um, <laughs> for, well, what do I think of it? I love it, of course. You talked about this the structure of this movie goes further and further into knowing who Cleo is. And I think that at first it seems like it's a pretty digressive and meandering movie. But you're right, Wilson, that a structure does make itself apparent as we're sort of going from interaction and relationship to a different relationship and a different interaction. And each time we're sort of meeting a person who in some way wants something of Cleo or projects something onto Cleo, but doesn't want to give her something or meet her own needs. And, you know, we go from the maid Angele who helps Cleo to the young men who compose for Cleo to her lover, to her friend Dorote, who is initially seen modeling and then her boyfriend, the filmmaker, and finally to Antoine. And all of these are stepping closer and closer to Cleo being able to have what she needs as a person out of a relationship with another person. And I think that that progression also applies to the viewer's impression of Cleo and the viewer's mm -hmm. understanding of Cleo. So Ben, when you're talking about the viewer feels addressed, it feels like, our own relationship with Cleo is developing. These techniques that you're pointing to, Wilson, the stylistic techniques like jump cuts and and playing with time and playing with, you know, things like camera placement, they all kind of do what the French New Wave does more of, which you mentioned, which is sort of placing the viewer outside of the subjectivity of the characters mm -hmm. to kind of uh, pontificate on images and uh, significance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut that. That sounded terrible. <laughs> or maybe I won't. <laughs> but the French New Wave does a lot of sort of, it can be very intellectualized. And Varda here initially does that by placing you outside of Cleo and getting you to kind of project assumptions onto her, mm -hmm. on who she is, on how, on how deep her personality actually is at first. It cracks that open increasingly. And I think the first important moment of that is when she's singing and the camera yes. 
goes into this incredible close up. Beautiful scene. I yes. it's this like incredible yes. long take where she begins to sing and the camera sort of like tracks sideways where there is like only a black background behind her and then the lighting shifts a little bit and you sort of like think that she's on stage but you have that like brief moment of like musicality that's sort of like cut by like reality and you like realize she's back in her own room and 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 she's like not this vision of a singer she is like this woman who's struggling from then on the movie is a sprint towards this meeting with Antoine and also you the viewer coming to understand and empathize with Cleo more and I think the Dorote relationship is almost there Mm-hmm. But there's something that isn't quite right, and Cleo flees that one as well. And we should talk. We should really dig into why Antoine helps give Cleo what she needs. Talking about like the like how it cracks open with the singing, the sing, the singing scene, right, where she has this emotional song that she does. Because Cleo, as a character, is a pop star, pop singer who sings mostly, you know, upbeat tracks, right. So like this really kind of sad song which she can pull off is like this turning point in the movie in terms of the character i think the thing about like the way that varda does narratives or at least early on when she does narratives like she has this ironic or like sly way of giving you information and i think (laughs) i think that's a it kind of made it difficult for me like even the first and second time that i watched cleo for me to empathize with that especially in the first part because she's you know childish and narcissistic and she's portrayed as such and she shows you scenes that make, would make you come to that conclusion so that she can sort of turn it on its head, you know, after this singing scene, you know, where Cleo's desperation and real fear of death is real. Yeah. yeah. But I think for me, it's hard for me to make that shift, mm-hmm. even though it's like, I know, and maybe it's just me not understanding the fear of death myself, right. that I couldn't really emotionally engage with her kind of situation, I guess. And I think that that was kind of what I was thinking about when I was talking about Le Bonheur. Like, I think the irony in this one, or not irony, the, the kind of inversion that she does, you know, doesn't feel as direct emotionally. And I think I would argue that she in this one is doing something that is sim- not say similar, but like is in line with the French New Wave, where it's kind of an exploration that's somewhat intellectual because mm-hmm. she's trying to present you different facets of Cleo, right? And it's supposed to be this thing that you toss and turn over in your head, you know, to understand Cleo as a character. And if you don't do that work, which I think sometimes I I wasn't doing, it doesn't become as interesting a movie. It's an interesting movie when you are thinking about how you think about Cleo, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I have to ask myself, am I, do I like Cleo as a character? Do I not like Cleo? Do I find her narcissistic? And I think that's the part of the film, of the viewing experience that's most interesting, where I'm reassessing how I think about Cleo. And I think that's what she wants you to do. I partially agree. I think that that's an interesting dynamic in the movie and the way that Cleo gets you. And also, you know, let's be frank, gets us as male viewers to reassess our assumption, our assumptions of Cleo from earlier scenes to later on. But I also Mm -hmm. think that that's, I I don't know that I would say that that's the most enjoyable part for me because also what Varda is really good at scene by scene is creating these characters that are instantly magnetic and she's a terrific scene writer and it's so engaging moment to moment. Yeah, it's I feel like it's so much in the dialogue. It 
feels so so casual yet so like meaningful like every line they say even though like like maybe it's not even like the content of the line it's just like sort of the cadence of of like how they're speaking like sometimes there's just so much punctuation in the dialogue that she writes which i think is is what really struck me on this watch of of these two movies is her dialogue writing because i always like paid attention to the way that she messed with visual style but i was looking a lot more at how she wrote her characters and how her characters talk to each other and it really really like impressed me agreed but to that point i watched the doc on her making about uh, making the film and vardas sort of like talks about cleo is 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 not like us getting to like know her better but rather cleo reaching this turning point in her own personality in the film because she has that like narration at the beginning of the film where she's like oh beauty is life or an ugliest ugliness is death and varda talks about how for like 45 minutes into the film where she's like leaving the studio with dorothy like a mirror cracks she says quote the beauty feels herself crack there's a shift in her where she starts to like to begin to look at others which she calls a feminist approach and i wonder what you guys think about that and like that is what Varda says allows her and Antoine to like really connect at the end. Yes, let's please dig into mirrors and the concept of being seen and seeing. This yes. is so important <laughs> in this movie. So from the top, throughout the whole movie, there are sequences where characters look into mirrors, particularly Cleo, and have voiceover. Voiceover only happens when someone is looking into a mirror. I think the only time we get someone else's voiceover is when... Cleo's in the cafe and she's upset and Anjale is watching Cleo be upset and has some voiceover. Am I correct? I think that's the only thing. It goes from a lot of Cleo being interested in her own image and what she wears and that being supported by Anjale's. Yeah. Then I think you use the word childish or, or, or something, but mm-hmm. you know, she is essentially infantilized by Anjale. And sort of just using that as her way of calming herself down. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm still beautiful. I'm still She alive. spends a lot of time focused on her own image, looking at mirrors, being treated by Anjale, and having voiceover that's in her own head. I think there's no voiceover after that mirror shatter moment, right? I think so. Hmm. It allows her to step out of both focusing on her own image and how other people are viewing her, which they are. They're all kind of, you know, all the people prior to that moment are projecting onto her and trying to get something out of her. Not necessarily maliciously. Yeah, and by extension, she herself is sort of defining her, trying to define herself by the the way that other people in her life view her. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's like evident, like when you see her with her lover or like even with, her um, composer and and songwriter, the way that that she acts in front of them is very much like, oh, I'm trying to be the version of me that you want me to be. I think it's so interesting that the moment when she sings and the camera moves in on her, that that is happening while she's singing. It's the dual understanding of the creation of art, in this case, by singing as something that Claire uses to make her image in a positive way and that breaks her image 
mm-hmm. and it's very wrinkled. Claire spends a lot of time thinking about art, and Dorote, you know, inflects her understanding of how Cleo uses her own art, and that certainly gets echoed in One Sings, The Other Doesn't. Yes. I guess before we get, like, deeper into this movie, should we go over One Sings, The Other Doesn't briefly? Yeah, I think we can do that. Then we can start talking about them together if you want to. Yes. Sure. So, um, One Sings, The Other Doesn't is a narrative film by Varda made in 1977. The plot of this film is sort of like split into two halves in two different time periods. So we we begin in the early 60s um, with a schoolgirl named Pauline who begins the film and she enters this photo gallery and recognizes an old uh, friend and neighbor, Suzanne, in one of the photographs displayed. And she finds out that Suzanne is actually the lover of the photographer Jerome and has two children with him. And when she meets Suzanne, um, Pauline finds out that Suzanne is expecting a third child, but she cannot afford to raise the third child with Jerome. So Pauline sort of takes this under her wing and decides to help Suzanne get an abortion. Um, so she lies to her parents to get the gets the funds and pays for Suzanne to get an abortion. And when Pauline's parents find out, she has to leave home and begin working as a singer. And Suzanne's boyfriend, the photographer, commits suicide, and Suzanne has to move back in with her parents on their farm. So the two women sort of like lose touch for over 10 years and then they meet at a pro-choice demonstration in 1972 and begin like talking to each other through letters. And through these letters, you sort of see what's happened to them within the the past 10 years. So Pauline, now known as, as Pom or Apple, becomes a singer with this traveling band and then gets involved with her boyfriend, Darius, and moves around with him um, and sort of becomes, like, dissatisfied with her life in Iran um, and decides to move back only after, um, like, becoming pregnant with 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 his child. Suzanne spe- has, like, a few, like, rough years living at the farm with her parents and decides to leave and opens a family planning clinic and... Um, she has like a budding relationship with like a doctor there. The second half of the movie sort of like jumps around in time and you see them reunite a few more times. And I think what what I really, really loved about this movie is how this is like a really good showcase of narrative filmmaking as activism and as feminism. Yes. And I think this can be also said for Cleo, but I feel like Varda is being like a lot more obvious within this film because she is like making a movie about two people whose lives are so closely linked with like issues of uh, women's choice and like abortion and how it's it, it is like so important to both of them and it's also so important to their friendship and how the going through these things really like make you closer together and like inseparable for life which is also another thing that i really love about this movie is 
how this movie is basically about a really, really incredible friendship between two people who are sort of like unlikely to be friends because they're sort of like of different age groups. But I think through shared experience, they really grow to love each other so much. And I really, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. So I just want to hear what you guys think about um, this movie. I want to go off of what you said about how this movie is activist and also feminist. And I think it's in a very unique way. I think a lot of the genre of melodrama and particularly male directed, male written and directed melodrama relies on showing the suffering of its characters to demonstrate the ways in which women are faced with struggles in real life. And I think that what sets this movie apart in a really interesting way is that Varda has a way of suggesting the problems that women must deal with without depicting them directly. So for example, when Suzanne's daughter Marie is on a date with a young man, there's a discussion about consent and they're out on the town at night and there's no one else around and there's the suggestion of danger, but things stay pleasant and okay. So Varda has a way of simultaneously acknowledging and asking the viewer to acknowledge the threat of something like assault, but she doesn't depict it and she doesn't force her character to go through that. And that's a very specific skill to pull off both of those things. And it Mm -hmm. speaks to Varda's both extreme intelligence and insight into sexism and also her ability to remain compassionate and really care for her characters. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the thing about the thing about this film that I'm thinking about when and also thinking about it in relation with the other films that she has made, like I agree totally with what you said, Wilson. Like it's like a story of an incredible friendship over a very long period of time to really help you understand them as characters. And I think as a feminist slash activist movie, I think it does it in a very complex and nuanced way. And I think that's why it's successful to me in terms of how it's trying to portray feminism in the 70s. Because like, even feminism now, like the way that people think about it, like there are a lot of polarizing ways of how we understand. And like, if somebody hates feminism for whatever reason, they kind of think of it as a certain way. Mm-hmm. Or like, it's, And so they portray the other side as also extreme. And so there's this like two extremes is how we, people think about foreign for and against feminism. Thinking of it as a feminist movie, it's a pro-choice movie, but that's something that she kind of says and then she moves on. Like, that's not the point of the movie, right? That's just where she starts. And I think it's a movie showing two friends having two very different lives, but they're not necessarily polar opposite lives. Like, yes, one of them is is going out singing feminist anthems on the road, and one of them is struggling as a single mother. But they're not saying that they're two very different people who just happen to be friends. They're saying that there are similarities and their differences and like everything is valid. And I think Varda creates these very complex women. I think she does the same thing with Cleo, right? Like there are so many shades of personality within each of her women and within each of her characters. And I think mm-hmm. that's for me what makes it so strong as a feminist movie. It's trying to argue of the kind of multiple complexities that people and women can have in general. Right. You know? Right. She doesn't want to present you with a kind of didactic idea of what she thinks feminism should be, you know? Yeah. And I think that the most interesting thing to me is how Pom goes off to Iran and then she gets increasingly frustrated with her 
marriage with this Iranian guy mm -hmm. and essentially doesn't like that she's been kind of caged into this specific idea of being a mother and a wife. Yeah. You know? And then so she exits that, but she still wants to have a child. Yes. And there's something kind of, un not say unusual, but un it's something that's not really explored, you know? And like this idea of motherhood and womanhood, it's not something that you can kind of put into different silos. Like Palma as a character is extremely complex and interesting. Like she's a radical feminist, but she also wants to have a child with her ex-husband. Why she wants to have a child is not necessarily said. She just wants to be able to kind of have the experience as a mother, you know, and bring this child on the road. So it's it's not, I don't know how to explain this, but like I don't have the right words for it, but I think I just like that they're complex. It's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. I think you summed it up really well, Ben, when you said that kind of simply everything is valid. It's demonstration through positive example mm -hmm. of what happiness and well-being looks like. And, you know, it's a really kind of unsolvable problem. For example, what Pam slash Pauline faces with her boyfriend, Daryush, because they just want conflicting things and there's no way really to resolve that and for them both to have what they want but they still manage to find some form of resolution. And as you know, Ben, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter why Pauline or Suzanne want, yeah. want what they want, but what matters yep, is that they exactly. have those wants and they're able to attain them. And they're able yeah. to attain them partially by finding solidarity with each other and solace yeah. with each other through their friendship. It's, yeah. it's, it, 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 it's just such a, it's such a glowing movie. And yeah. I mean that both thematically and in the cinematography. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I think that is, is my favorite looking Varda film. If you take out that brief section that she's shot in Iran, I think that rivals the way that Kiristavi shoots. Well, I, I feel like it's, it's different subjects, but I think the way that she composes her shots in this is really something to admire and to learn from. I will say that the Iran sequence, just because we're mentioning it now, it, it doesn't quite have the same verisimilitude or like spontaneity of when she shoots the street in, say, Paris. Yeah. I think that it feels a little bit staged and not quite like she has a full grasp on the kind of everyday mundanity in, in uh, is it Tehran where she's filming or elsewhere? I think so. It's in... I have no idea. Yeah, if it, it, it doesn't quite feel um, as organic as the French sequences, but she still manages to ground the specificity of the relationship between Pauline and uh, Dariush very well. But yeah, with the, with the cinematography, like this is one of the first times that I've like Googled a movie and been like, what was this? Like, what was this film stock? <laughs> yeah, tell us the film stock. It's 45 millimeter silver color stock. And it, it just God, the colors. The yeah, color. the nat natural light looks so good in this movie. It's yeah. incredible. I wanted to just go back to what you were talking about, Eli, when you respond to me. And I think it helped crystallize what I was trying to get at. It kind of explores how they both come to their own kind of definition of what their lives as women should be. And then the thing that you were talking about before, like early on, about how melodrama likes to use, you know, extreme situations and like sensationalist outcomes to put women in in terrible situations and see how they suffer right and this one is kind of like let's put them in bad situations and see how they thrive you know yeah and so Suzanne begins in this you know melodramatic ish situation you know her lover is dead she has two kids she has no money and then she can't figure out 
how to survive. And the way the film ends, you kind of forgot that that's where she began. She becomes the community leader. Yeah. Yeah. And she comes to an own idea of what being a woman is like to be a community leader, to have a second husband, to still bring up these two kids. And then, you know what I mean? Like she kind of forms her own idea of what her family, what her life should be like within this kind of um, the 70s. And I think Agnes as the director is trying to show you the different kinds of lives that they can have within the context of like feminism rising in the 70s. And I think I okay, I want to I want to I want to kind of call bullshit on our conversation here for a second. Because okay, I think yeah. one of the things one of the things that Varda does that we should be a little bit wary of as we're talking about this as as three dudes is that yeah. <laughs> these three care, you know, between Cleo, Pauline and Suzanne, they it doesn't it doesn't feel like Varda is trying to use them to make an argument of what it is to be a woman or a woman's experience. And when we talk about, you know, when we use the three words as a woman, <laughs> I, yeah. it doesn't so much feel like this is what Varda is trying to do. She's just th- showing three specific people and how they live their lives and how they come to find happiness and balance in some way and become healthier people. And it is both demonstrating feminist ideas that Varda agrees with or, or seems to agree with but it's also just it's also just these three characters and how they go about their lives and again Ben you said it well with just like kind of everything is valid so it's both talking about capital F feminism and it's also just kind of these characters that specificity makes it work as loving portraits of people first and foremost i think it's less as a woman as is more of like as one woman doing her life her way you know what i mean and i think like she and I think that's the kind of the interesting thing I find about Varda like with when I was watching the videos where she talks about you know her life's work and stuff like that like she never says anything that's you know like she's trying to say like a big idea she's not like my film is trying to say this mm-hmm. you know she's just like I'm trying to show you this she's yeah. very direct you know she's just I want to show you this you know that's kind of the point and then that presentation of that one example or what do you want to call it is its own thing. And she's just adding to the conversation. She's not really trying to make a grand argument in her career or in her life. And I think you watching her films feels like trying to glean something from what she's doing mm-hmm. rather than trying, rather than her trying to tell you something specific or like some kind of macro idea of what she thinks, you know what I mean? And I think that's what I find fascinating about her. She's not trying to pretend to be profound or pretend to have the right idea. She's just like, this is just one person that I one person that I imagine based on what I know, you know. And yet she is profound and does have the right yeah. idea. Yeah. And she <laughs> exactly. and she, and that's true because she goes about it all with a lot of love. Yes. And I don't say that to be trite. I, it's <laughs> she really That's just how it is. Yeah, she just really cares. Yeah, and I feel like that ref, that reflects on how all like her protagonists grow to love and grow to care about the people in their lives, especially in one sings and the other doesn't. Their friendship is like the most important part of that movie for me. And the thing that like moves me the most is that through all these years, um, they still have such a strong bond to each other. And that love that they share for each other is, 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 you can tell that like Varda also put a lot of her own love into these characters. 
to translate what we're talking about now, which is kind of an overarching idea of the movie and, and all of her movies in general, to translate this into a conversation about technique, I think that Varda has a way of taking these big ideas that the movies are moving through and condensing them into single images in a way that really sticks with me long after I've viewed the movie. Mm-hmm. So one from one sings the other doesn't, uh, to exemplify what I'm talking about, that comes to mind like lightning, super clear, is after Pauline has argued with Daryush about whether or not they'll go back to Iran. They, they have a big argument, and then the argument kind of cools down. And then it's just Pauline sitting, breastfeeding their child together, and Daryush comes up behind her and hugs her. And it's Pauline holding her child, breastfeeding her child, there's sweat darkened her shirt under her armpits and she's crying three different types of bodily fluid (laughs) in one image and Daryush is hugging her and it's a moment of so much emotion and many different kinds of emotion wrapped up in one single piece of blocking and framing and it's incredibly powerful it's very moving to see that image because it takes the broad experience of a movie and compacts it into this one moment, I think that that's astounding and is always impressive in her filmography because there's there are always those moments that carry so much meaning in one brief moment. Like it's that critical mass. That reminded me, well, that didn't directly remind me, but you said breasts. And I was like, oh, the, <laughs> the, the musical number where she performed topless and then like when she was changing back into her clothes she like puts on a shirt and the shirt is just like oh boobs oh and yeah I'm like oh Marta, you are incredible <laughs> like what yeah is- i mean that's one other thing that we haven't said is that like there's so much humor yes yeah really yeah. wonderful humor that's that's never at anyone's expense it's just like there's a light-heartedness and fun i love how she the main idea of this movie isn't like abortion but like the the thing that like brings them together in the in the first act of the film is apple's like act of taking the money from her parents to pay for suzanne's abortion but i think like if if you're like explaining to the plot to someone like someone will think that this is like like a dark movie (laughs) her boyfriend like kills himself like I, i don't know but Throughout the film, there is, like, this real sense of, like, lightheartedness. Yeah, I I appreciate how she doesn't approach this in such a serious manner. I think it makes it a lot more, like, accessible to a lot of people. I think there are a number of things that, in other writer-directors' hands, would become plot obstacles or, like, moments of uh, fracturing between relationships, you Mm -hmm. know, Suzanne reveals to Pauline that she didn't tell the truth about how she used that money and she got an abortion from a local doctor who ended up causing an infection that caused Suzanne to lose her uterus. And that is something that I think in a lot of other movies would become a fracturing point and would cause their friendship to at least temporarily end. And that doesn't happen here. It brings Pauline and Suzanne closer together. It's a very down-to-earth way of, again, showing these things that cause suffering for these two female characters, but don't aren't world-ending. It shows the audience problems that these characters have to deal with, but it allows the characters to overcome and continue. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk about the musical numbers, because yeah. I think, obviously, that has like a huge impact as to why it's such a lighthearted 
and fun movie to watch. Yes. And I mean, that scene when she's on stilts and they're practicing the, the song. That I mean, okay, production design in this is also just really, really fun. Incredible, yeah. 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 Especially with the, the the kind of performances in on the road, and the costumes. Yeah. And... Also, the little boy and his dad that that joins them so cute, so cute. Shout out. The kind of DIY theater kind of thing, and I mean that's that really interesting um, one where there's a woman that's pretending to play a piano, but it's not real. Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing, like it's just like a fun weird thing that she put in. Yeah. Yeah. I love how they're so different. Like she like decides like an interesting way to shoot each number for them to perform each number. It, I, I think it makes them so memorable. And also, I mean, uh, this feels like a blunt or, or blatant thing to say, but one of the characters sings and the other doesn't. Everything is valid. They can be living in different genres of movie and still have a friendship and still be still both be valid and and worthwhile people right it's also interesting how varda uses the musical numbers to poke a little bit of fun at the sort of like the art life that pauline lives <laughs> yes um which of course is also a little bit self-deprecating uh humor as well when pauline performs at suzanne's family planning clinic and one of yeah. the audience members criticizes her song as not being as pro-choice as she would think that's a really interesting moment because it sort of questions how much art really can be activist and it may, it gets you to ask what is the impact of a movie like this or a yeah. piece of art like that yeah that that actually that's a moment that really stuck with me and i was reading up about the movie and and it's not really a movie that people talk about when they talk about varda and apparently when it first came out it was actually very divisive yeah there was that new york film festival premiere where people walked out and like what and yeah. i don't really know yeah. i didn't i couldn't find enough about like why it was so divisive and i think so i found this uh i was reading an article for a movie by varda kung fu master which i forgot to mention before which is another kind of it's a bit of an iffy movie from varda this <laughs> is about a woman a 40 year old woman having a relationship with a 14 year old boy but oh. moving beyond that there was just a section where it talked about one sings and the other doesn't and it uses phrase which i was like really this review for this other movie called one things and the other doesn't as having naive polemics at the time that it was released mm. back in the 70s not not as a retrospective idea but like at the point in time for this review when it came out he found it naive or he or she i can't remember yeah so i don't know what you're thinking about that that's hmm. i mean I, I would want to read that quotation in context definitely i think that Again, it kind of circles back to just how specific Pauline and Suzanne's lives are. It feels hard to lodge that kind of complaint when, as we're talking about, Pauline and Suzanne are not kind of the be-all, end-all of the the female experience, yeah. whatever that would even mean. They're just two people, and it's how they live their lives and how they find balance. Both and. <laughs> what Eli said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because when I read it, I was like, I found that it was kind of harsh. Yeah, but it really interests me to think about, like, why people, like, why a lot of people did not like the movie when it came out. And, like, some part of me was like, oh, it is, it is like, ahead of its time. It, like, it, the politics that it talks about is, is very ahead of its time. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, what other reason. Um, I, I think it's, like, a very, very enjoyable, lovable movie. And I do think, like, that it is one of... Varda's best narrative films 
I am like not a big fan of Vagabond. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that I, I think that the the tone of it really didn't work with me a lot, and I think the lack of dialogue, or, or it was it was very slow for me. But I do I I do really appreciate the way that she used. It was like documentary interviews, right? Like like pseudo documentary interviews to like tie in those stories of her. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I I'm I'm not sure why this sparked that thought, but it, what 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 you're talking about? The, the, maybe the slowness. What you said about the slowness kind of gets me to think about the passage of time mm-hmm. in both Cleo, One Sings, The Other Doesn't, and also Vagabond. I I personally find it very emotionally effective when a movie covers a long period of time and periodically reminds you how far these characters have come. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of something like To Live by right. Zhang Yimou. You know, there are these moments in One Sings and The Other Doesn't when... Suzanne and Pauline reflect on how far they've come and even how much they've forgotten. I forget who said it, but one of you said that like it's easy to forget where Suzanne even came from and she does that herself. Mm-hmm. And in Cleo, it's really wonderful how over the course of the two hours, although I think it's an hour and a half runtime of the movie, actually, <laughs> that Cleo has to learn how to sort of go with the flow of moving time and remain present. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that she practices in her friendship with Antoine is like not going into voiceover in her head and not projecting too much worry about the future, but sort of being in the moment in this journey through the city with Antoine and going to get her result. One of the, I think the last line of dialogue is um, Antoine says to her, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. I'd like to be with you. And Cleo says, you are. And that feels like such a summation of her character progression from all these worries that take her out of the present moment and the space that she's in to just be present. And it's also a little bit ironic and kind of playful, but also a nice summation that the camera rushes away mm-hmm. from them. I think just before that moment as yeah. the doctor is driving away, it's a simultaneous keeping you present with the character as she becomes present in her own space and time and taking you away and back out into the world to yeah. carry on what you've experienced in this movie. Fun fact about that that final scene, or actually that final shot, it's not the the, the quick uh, zoom out uh, or dolly out from behind the car. There's a slower dollying out that the, the camera does. And actually, after they shot it for the first time, Varda was looking through her dailies and saw dolly tracks in this shot and oh, no. was like, this cannot happen. And like jumped through so many hoops and spent so much money with her producers to reshoot that scene, just that one scene. And then afterwards, realizing like, that doesn't work. They weren't in it anymore. Their performances were not good. And then just decided to keep the Dolly tracks in, in the final cut. And that's what we see today. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, incredible. I don't think anyone notices at all. Which, yeah, it's just like you didn't is. notice, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to think that she was like did so many things to try to to correct that mistake, but then it, it turns out that that their performances were more important, and uh, I guess like how in the moment everyone was like while making the movie. But I I would like to t- start talking about like comparing these two movies because I do think 
that there are a lot of similarities, but you seeing these two movies, you sort of see how far Varda comes as a, as a narrative filmmaker in like the 10 years in between these two movies. Yeah. What do you guys think about like seeing her career through just uh, like watching, watching these two films? She certainly, Claire's very confidently directed, but I think that in one sings and the other doesn't camera placement feels very purposeful and maximizes really maximizes the use of space I think that there are few movies that use wallpaper as purposefully as One Sings and the Other doesn't, does. Yes, yeah. And yeah, those moments when Suzanne and Pauline get united and are in the same space together carry so much emotional power and catharsis. And I think it's also just so smart how those spaces where they reunite go from the private space of Jerome's apartment that Suzanne has no control over to the public space of the protest that Suzanne and Pauline are fighting to have Mm -hmm. control over to the private space in the south of France where Suzanne does control her own house. And that progression alone says a lot about how these characters move through their lives. It's also effective. And I think that that's a testament to Varda's framing and how she shoots the characters, that she really makes you want them to be together and the power of their performances yes, as well. Yes, definitely. I, I think with Cleo, it feels so much more rooted in the kind of French New Wave type of, of style, right? Which is why yeah. I think with One Sings, it, it feels much more emotionally engaging because it, it, I think it kind of cuts the away kind of the stylistic things that you would do in, with the French New Wave, the, the kind of general style. And it becomes much more simple and it kind of lets the characters carry the film much more. And I think for me, at least, I think that that helps it have more emotional engagement because there's kind of less going on. Because with, I think she was also very playful in Cleo and she was doing a lot with, you know, with the mirrors and like with the jump cuts and stuff like that. And I, But I think sometimes those elements distract away from the emotional story for me. And I think mm-hmm. with One Sings, there's so much in terms of like, like the cinematography isn't, not say simple, but like, it isn't trying to get in your face, you know? It's not distracting you with itself, you know? It's not putting Cleo's face in random mirrors that are just in the space, which is fun, but, like, can kind of be a distraction from what she's saying. Because for me as a viewer, I'm kind of, like, going, oh, yeah, she's in the mirror. And she's in the, she's in that mirror now. And I think, for me, that distracts a lot from what is happening within the scene. Yeah, but I think with one thing, there's something more, less, I would guess, distracting. Or maybe more cohesive in the way that she's trying to do it where the story is much more the foreground rather than like trying to emphasize the style that she's using. I'm going to slightly disagree with you on that. I I, I do think that it is a lot about like what kind of story that she is trying to tell and how she is using style to in service of that story. So like with Cleo, I think the mirrors like add to your confusion, which I like about like her confusion about like, I, I feel like they're uh, it's a very chaotic movie from that opening, like hanging man tarot card. Like, you know, like shit's about to go down <laughs> and, <laughs> and like the, the way that she uses like shots of like people like watching her like first person POV, um, shots of like just people looking into the camera are so unnerving and 
with One Sings the Other Doesn't, I really love how controlled she is with her camera and just really letting the characters live within each moment and really like savor each moment because I really I, it's sort of like revisiting memories. I, I, I really think that about like one sings the other doesn't mm. because you're, you're 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 visiting like different like moments in these people's lives. And they they even like you even see them revisiting their own memories when they are writing to each other about the life that they have led since since they've been gone. And I think the more locked down, like quiet cinematography really adds to that. To add to that, I think that also these moments that you're mentioning, Ben, of Cleo being framed just so in the mirrors or editing choices like ellipses and jump cuts and repetitions, those things leave the stylistic vernacular of the movie as the movie goes on as Cleo is moving closer and closer to being present in the moment. I think of a sequence like Cleo and Antoine taking the trolley to the hospital. And I think she pretty much always has dialogue with the people that she's with until that moment. And she's able to just exist in silence with Antoine. It's very stylistically unobtrusive in that moment. And I think that the the kind of more pronounced moments up top are used purposefully to bend your understanding of Cleo around until those moments later in the movie when you can kind of clear out and just sort of exist along with her as she's existing in the moment herself. I'm going to take, take back my point. I, I mean, I think, <laughs> no, I, think no. I mean, I agree with both of you because I think it's really difficult to say, like draw a line between the two films and say like how her styles evolve, because I don't think it's really that evolves, but that it changes per movie because she's doing something different for yeah. the reason she's doing it for that movie. And so it's not really mm-hmm. like something you can really track. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, really yeah. for each yeah. movie, this is what she does. And that's really all we can, I would say I can really do with Varda because she is so dynamic as a director. Like her choices are not always the same. Like she's always doing different things. Right. Which is also just reminded me of like the first, like you you just mentioned the first person shots in um, Cleo, which I think were, my favorite sequences in Cleo were actually the parts where she's alone. And when she's in a cafe and mm-hmm. when she is, when she plays her own song and then when she walks on the streets with the first person shots where people look right in her eyes. And I think, of all the moments, probably that section helped me understand her the most. And for me, I liked a lot because it also reminded me of like how Varda does, like it's really interested in the world. And it's kind of the point where Cleo is also noticing the world and she is noticing this, I'm being seen, but I'm also looking back. And I think yeah. that part is like you say, disorienting for a reason because it's trying to put you in her literally in her eyes and like how she sees other people and i really like how you can hear different conversations happening during the movie they have nothing to do with cleo and that's kind of the whole point you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i absolutely love that you can tell how curious varda is about the world around her yes and one thing that i can tell for sure as like a sort of like progression in her career between these two movies is her budget. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But also I think what's really interesting is what she chooses to do with that budget. Cause I, I would assume that a lot of the money that she used to make um, one things the other doesn't is, was to like go overseas and to like go to Iran and like to go to Amsterdam and to like really like shoot these places because 
she herself was also interested in these places. And I think that really like speaks to like Varda as like a filmmaker who is always like curious about the world more than anything else. I guess also story, but um, I, I know I said this earlier, but it's like she has infinite space for meeting as many people as possible and keeping them in her heart and capturing them on film and giving them not capturing, lending them time on film. To exist. I think for me, like I, the thing I was thinking about watching these and then while I was watching Kung Fu Master and like, I feel like we're so lucky that she made movies for so many decades. I always forget that Varda mm-hmm. was a photographer and so she likes to capture things. And I would say like she's able to kind of capture the essence of each of each kind of period. And it feels like I'm, I'm glad to have her perspective in each decade almost kind of kind yeah. of how I think about it because we have Cleo what, in the 50s and I'm sure she made something in the 60s and then <laughs> one thing's in the 70s. Kung Fu Master in the 80s and she has like arcade machines and stuff. Um and then the 90s to the, like, the early 2000s, she has like the gleaners. So like she kind of captures like the world through her life. And yeah, wow. yeah like, I mean, Varda Logs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Varda Logs. That, we, will have a, we will have an episode on the Varda yeah. Logs. And I'm, I'm saying that like with the narrative films, there were like Varda Logs in, her, in themselves, you know? Like people still mm-hmm. go to Paris and retrace Cleo's steps, which I think is, I don't know, like... Too much, but I kind of want to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, in the, like the Criterion like special features, there's like the like walk, uh, go go through uh, Cleo's path through Paris. Um, so they like they really like put in a lot of time to like map yeah. her her way around the city. And what also really struck me is their attention to detail with like all the clocks right. um, in the movie. And making sure that they were like very accurate to the time that they were happening in the film, and that includes like all like the public clocks like in the streets and stuff, just making sure that they shot at the right time, which I think is ridiculous. Yes. But um, like props to props to them. Like they really didn't need team. to do that, but I don't know. No. <laughs> you just have, like let's avoid all the clocks, but no. <laughs> Okay, I was just I was just gonna talk about how impressive they shot all the driving sequences because there are some really long tracking shots, prob- like most probably from another vehicle in Clio that that they took that I I'm I still don't know how they they pulled it off. They, there's like one that like goes oh, through yeah. the tunnel with her and Dorothy where Dorothy is driving. So I I I saw some behind the scenes. They had like you know those those camera car type things to follow the thing. Yeah. But the more interesting fact that I learned is that Dorothy did not know how to drive until, like, the day before shoot. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah, I told, know this. Yeah, I think this was in the documentary she made. And so yeah. she told her driving instructor, <laughs> she was like, do I pass? And he's like, not really. And then she's like, okay, but I kind of need this license so I can shoot tomorrow. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and that's how... And it's like, wait, what? Whoa. And I think that's why she's, you know, sticking her hand out and all that. I, I think it was because it was like, okay, let's just make sure she doesn't crash in anyone. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were shooting on the actual streets of Paris with actual traffic. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just kind of wild. It's I think crazy. I haven't breathed in like 30 seconds. That's so <laughs> stressful. <laughs> As someone who like has gotten significantly better at driving in the past few months... I would not want to leap into shooting a movie early on into learning to drive. No. Yeah, act and also drive the car for real. Oh my God. Yeah, just imagine yourself as that actress. 
Oh my god. Better than being DP and driving at the same time, I guess. That's true. That's true. Well, do you guys want to talk about that silent short in the in Cleo with Jean Luc? I thought that oh. was very very fun and cute. I don't know. I don't even know if this is right, but it feels like a playful look at what the movie is saying almost, but like mm-hmm. not quite also. I mean, the thing I like about Cleo is how it ends and like she finds out that she does have cancer. But then that's not really the problem. Yeah. The problem was the waiting. Mm-hmm. And I think then she's, you know, relieved that she found out. But like, there's still this whole other thing where there's, she has cancer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that movie, in the, the short film in the middle is about kind of looking at the world in different lights, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's basically it. And having the kind of duality of like how we can see the world. I also like that it makes Godard look like a dope because Varda depicts everyone with <laughs> compassion, everyone empathetically, but the only villain in her entire filmography is Godard in Faces yeah, Places. Yeah, carries When through. he stands her through. up in her own movie. <laughs> what a okay, jerk. Okay, quick, quick question. Do you guys think that he actually did stand her up? <laughs> or did the I... villain in the movie? Maybe maybe she went there and she's like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to film this whole thing where he stood me up, but not tell him. It's like a dirty little present for you, John Luke. Well, she also tells the story about how he, like, ignored her in a cafe. And she had, like, somebody come back. He just sounds like a jerk. He seems like I'm willing to believe that. Yeah, I believe, yeah, yeah, I believe yeah. Barta. The only French New Wave filmmaker you should care about <laughs> is Agnes Barta. I think as one final thing to touch on, it sounds like we're kind of wrapping up, the running theme of being seen that we've kind of circled around a little bit, I want to dive into a little bit more. In Cleo, of course, we've talked about the mirrors and how everyone kind of wants something from Cleo until Antoine, and she really spends time with him and feels acknowledged in some measure of complexity, unlike in her other relationships. And then in One Sings the Other Doesn't, there's the idea of photography that threads through Suzanne's relationships from the photographer Jerome through the pediatrician Pierre Albonel, who's uh, dreamy. Very gorgeous. Suzanne says that she hasn't felt seen by someone since Jerome, and she remarks in a letter to Pauline that she feels seen by Pierre Albanel, Dr. Pierre Albanel, dreamboat Dr. Pierre Albanel. <laughs> and, and he takes photos too. So there's an acknowledgement by Varda that to be seen is important. And at the same time, Varda often has characters look into the lens. And as Ben, you noted, even when there aren't characters looking into the lens, you feel included and addressed and seen by Varda in her movies. And I think that's one of the really powerful things about her is that she makes you feel like a person who is worthy of attention. And she does that by both depicting her characters as people worthy of attention and nuance and addressing you as such. That is why to me, she is on the pedestal as just like one of the, one of the best directors who has been on the earth. And as Ben, you said, we're so lucky that she made movies for so long and she is sorely missed in 2020. Sorely missed. She oh, really harder. dodged the bullet there. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think the thing that's really common about this movie, like it's about how we don't really know people until we know people. Yeah. And I, I mean, to just kind of make a huge 
that's a huge conjecture. Maybe like, because how you see how one things begins with the photos, right? I mean, yes, they're photos of women, sometimes nude by a man. But I think she kind of shows you Suzanne and like you don't know anything about her. And then now after the whole movie, you know so many things about her. And you know, Pauline gets a picture taken as well. And then you don't know that much about Pauline until you watch the whole movie and you understand her as a person. And I think that's exactly the same with Cleo as well. Like you see an image of Cleo, an idea of Cleo, and then she unwraps that. Mm-hmm. lets you really see who Cleo can be and is. And I think that's kind of like the, the through line of both movies. And I think with Vagabond as well, because Vagabond, the main character is also, she gets, I, I, haven't, I don't remember too much from Vagabond after watching it a few years ago, but I just remember that she gets pissed off and all that. And like, she can be kind of belligerent, but she's still, you know, a person mm-hmm. who's trying to survive, you know? And I think that's what she is doing with that as well. And I think the conjecture is maybe Varda was taking photos of all these people and then she realized she couldn't show you their whole person. Maybe that's why she had to start making movies and like really let people speak for themselves. Because mm. photos don't, you know, maybe they don't scratch the surface for her. Maybe that's why she was like, I got to make movies and make documentaries and like tell your story because the photos don't cut it. I don't know. <laughs> the difference is time. Yes. I met someone who's a nature photographer who asked me why it's important to put things to film. And he said, because you give it time. And I think that that's what Varda does in the people mm. that she commits yeah. to film. And also in her own life. I don't know. I feel like she is just so open and like willing to like just make time for, for other people and to get yeah. to know other people. I think that's just such a nice way of putting it. And I think that's, I mean, that's basically what these two movies are. Like ones, let's give them time in real time, like mm-hmm. Cleo in real time, waiting, live with her for those two one and a half hours or whatever and with um, one thing is let's spend decades with them yeah to understand them as people and that time is what makes you understand them so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love it it makes me think about friendships in my own life too and i think that that's that's one of the best things that movies can do is that it, it, it asks you to take ideas and feelings that you develop for people on screen and carry them over to treat people in your own life with dignity and respect. And it makes me think about the friendship that we've had for a number of years, too. So. <laughs> oh, geez. Maybe that's too much. <laughs> cut the sentimentality. No. I want to cut to problem. the feeling. Oh, It's too much of a deep cut. <laughs> oh, another deep cut. No. credits. <laughs> I guess this concludes our episode on Agnes Farda. Thank you so much for tuning in and hearing our thoughts. Um, make sure you catch both Cleo from 5 to 7 and One Sings the Other Doesn't. They're both streaming on the Criterion channel. You can also, they both have their own Criterion editions. I would highly recommend getting the One Sings the Other Doesn't because they recently did a restoration and the print looks absolutely gorgeous so also i mean this is not to plug criterion but <laughs> they just released a huge agnes varda box set which ooh, ooh, every single film by agnes varda it's so, like ten thousand dollars <laughs> it's, it. it's not but go to their website and find out i don't know and maybe it'll throw us a sponsorship yeah <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. sponsor our show criterion let us come into yeah. the criterion closet that's, that's my, all I want. That is my bucket list dream is to take 
any Blu-rays I want from that closet. <laughs> Don't tell me I can take anything because I'll take everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review us because that helps us keep the show running. And make sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when a next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. And thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Uh, on that note, I am Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You've been listening to Deep Cut. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> like, Renata and Big Little Lies. Thank you. <laughs> I said thank you. <laughs> <laughs>